2009, November 19th. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 38, The Pale Blue Dot, Seeking Other Earths. So this is, the, this is the payoff. This is what we've been looking for, is we've been talking about planets around other stars. We've seen an awful lot of gas giants, but the thing we really want to see, the thing that everyone would like to discover, is the pale blue dot. We would like to find another Earth. So what this lecture is going to be about is talking about what often is referred to as exo-Earths. These are Earth-like planets circling other stars. First main point today is that detection of Earth's Earth is going to be really, really hard because they're really small in size and they're extremely faint by comparison to their parent stars. But that's primarily a technological challenge. It's, not a, bar it's, it's a barrier only insofar as we're clever, but we're not as clever as we'd like to be. We can certainly do indirect detection and certainly we'll get transit observations or microlensing observations that will probably find these things. But taking a picture, that's going to be hard. If we could take a picture, ultimately we can take not just simply a, a single image of a little blue dot, but we could take its spectrum. We can break the light into its component colors, and that's going to teach us an awful lot. So a lot of what this lecture is going to be about is not so much about what the properties of other Earths are, but what is the property of the Earth looked at from the outside, and what can we learn about the Earth from the outside that tells us how, what kind of measurements we can expect to make. So the first thing we'll notice is the spectrum of the Earth has two humps. One of them in it, one of them is reflected sunlight, and the other one is thermal emission. This will have some interesting properties that we're going to see in a moment. The other thing we can do about the spectral properties is they can help, help us measure the size and the surface temperatures of the Earth. We can figure out how big the thing is actually by making these measurements. But more exciting perhaps than any of those is that inside the spectrum, because the light will pass through the atmosphere and come back out again, is it will sample what the constituents of the atmosphere are. And people have begun to put together a set of what they call spectral biomarkers. These are indicators in the spectrum of the atmosphere that suggest the presence of life. And so these are things that could or can indicate the presence of life on some exo-Earth. So we don't have to take detailed pictures. We can actually tell right away once I get enough light to take a spectrum. Finally, we can actually also can reconstruct the surfaces features of these planets, oceans, continents, and weathers by looking at the time variability of their reflectance spectrum. So there's an awful lot of information that we can get if we can first find the exo-Earths, get an idea of their properties, and actually begin to ask the question, do they harbor life? So what this, this lecture is about is trying to show you where we are in that thinking and where we are in the search. So just to remind you, as of well, last week, we know of 405 planets around 343 stars. Every single one of those planets to date, with a couple of exceptions of things that are weird around pulsars, are gas giants or ice giants. We have not yet found anything which is Earth mass in its habitable zone. We found a few super-Earths. We found a couple things that may plausibly be rocky, but we don't have any evidence of it yet. The dominant form of planet is a big gas giant or an ice giant. But the ultimate goal, the thing we really, really want to do, is we want to find Earth-like planets in the habitable zones of their parent stars. We haven't done it yet. And the part of the reason for that is some of our methods are not quite up to it yet. The radial velocities method, the RV method, is currently insensitive to Earth-mass planets. It would have to push its sensitivity down, as we saw yesterday, to tens of centimeters per second to be able to achieve that. Transit methods, where you watch for the planet to cross between us and the face of its parent star, make the light dip a little bit, are currently most sensitive to really big planets. They're close, sensitive to gas giants really close in. They're not sensitive to Earths 
yet. In 2008, the Kepler mission was launched that is going to start changing that. But it's going to be another four or five years before that pays off, if it pays off. It still remains to be seen. So there's hope that the Kepler mission is going to be able to find Earths in their habitable zone using the transit method. And it's done that by pushing the technology to measure dips in the brightness of stars to extremely faint levels, to extremely low levels. Finally, this technique of microlensing that's been developed in part here at Ohio State actually is currently technologically capable of finding Earths, but it won't do so around nearby stars. Microlensing tends to pick up stars that are halfway between us and the center of the galaxy on average, which means we're talking about stars whose average distances are measured in 10,000 to 20,000 light years. So we're, this will probably once, I mean, right now we could, we could do it if we got lucky. Future microlensing studies that are in progress for being developed into the teens of the next decade will probably actually find a number of Earths. But this is only going to be good for trying to get a global census, an idea of how often you find Earth-like planets around, near, around stars, but probably not going to be very good for giving you candidates for detailed follow-up studies of the kind that we're going to discuss today. So all of these methods are certainly complementary. They will ultimately find Earths, and the question is, the big question is, when are we going to find Earths? And the second, which will be most of the topic of today's lecture, is what are we going to do once we find them? So just to review, this, these are the current state-of-the-art and then future thinking. This is the Kepler mission. It was launched late last year. and is currently up in orbit. It's just finishing its orbit verification phases and is now actually beginning to make observations. They're staring at a single field in the sky, and they've mapped out all the F, G, and K, and M stars and are going to be watching them night after night, hour after hour, to see if any of them have an Earth that happens to be in an orbit that's very close to our line of sight and crosses between us and the star. And they want to see it go around a couple times. They need to see it transit twice or three times to make certain it's not some kind of fluke. Of course, they'll develop a set of candidates. The candidates will be followed up, and hopefully we'll get a confirmation. This is a slow process, but this is actually a very promising method. They've approximately achieved their noise goals. The spacecraft is operating more or less like they'd expect it, although a couple of the chips right now on the CCDs have a, a little bit more noise than they expected. But, but Kepler is right now on orbit, producing data, promising. But it's going to be three, four, at least four, three, four years before they start getting any really big results. In the future, NASA and ESA, the European Space Agency, are planning missions to be able to take the search for exo-Earths to the next level. There's two mission concepts which are currently still being talked about. They haven't been finalized. They don't have launch dates yet. The European mission is called Darwin, and the NASA mission is in NASA Ease is an acronym called Terrestrial Planet Finder, or TPF. It's very likely, I'm going to just sort of stick it out here and say there's a bit of a guess. I'm going to bet that, the, that what we're going to end up with with Darwin and TPF is the ultimate mission is going to be a mashup between both NASA and ESA, because these are going to prove to be so terribly expensive that no one agency is going to be able to justify using all of their budget for this, unless they've got really compelling targets to look at. It's going to consist of a variety of, it's actually not a single spacecraft, but actually a constellation of spacecraft. One set of those spacecraft is, are specialized imagers that, whose goal is to take direct images of Earths around nearby stars, primarily using techniques like coronography or interferometry. They're Pretty black belt stuff that still needs to be qualified before it's ready to fly in space. So there's a lot of development effort going on in here. 
And then the other possibility is that once you find them and can take images, you can similarly use the imaging systems to take spectra, primarily spectra into the infrared parts of the, of the electromagnetic spectrum to search for at atmospheric biomarkers that we're going to be talking about here in this lecture. So this is basically what we brought to bear on this problem. We're trying to find Earths around other stars. This is a simulation of what the terrestrial planet finder coronagraphic camera would possibly produce. This is purely simulated data. It shows a little tiny Earth-like planet next to its parent star, but all this junk that you see around it is part of the coronagraph technique. What they're doing is the optical equivalent of looking into a bright light and holding your hand up to block the light out so you can see the faint stuff around it. It's actually really hard because the difference in brightness between an Earth-like planet and its parent star is profound. They're very, very faint by comparison to their background stars. So how are we going to even approach this problem, and why don't we just sort of stop and say, and we haven't done it, which is usually where these lectures end. We usually tack the stuff on about Earths onto the end of a lecture about what we, what we know about other planets. But there's another tack we can take, is that we can't study other Earths yet. We don't have the technology yet. We're just starting to get the technology to find other Earths. But we can begin to ask the question, well, what if we found them? What can we study? How do we prepare for studying these other Earths and looking for them for signs of life? And the way we do that is by looking at our own planet from the outside, by stepping back, using a combination of spacecraft and other techniques, and saying, what would the Earth look like from far away? We certainly know it up, personal, up close as to what's there. So that gives us a way of being able to interpret and build up a set of diagnostics and measurement benchmarks that we can use to learn something about these Earths once we find them. Now we've seen this picture before. I showed this back a couple weeks ago when we talked about the solar system. It's a picture of the planet Saturn taken from the Cassini spacecraft. Cassini was on one of the wide swings behind the planet. The sun is being eclipsed by the planet Saturn. And this small white square here at the outside of one of the rings shows shining between the two rings a little tiny pale blue dot that is, in fact, our planet, the Earth. So you can see that viewed even from only a, about a billion or so kilometers away from the orbit of Saturn, the, the Earth is incredibly faint, so faint that we have to use special techniques to pick it out next to the, out of the glare of the giant, sun's, uh, giant planet Saturn. We have to use Saturn to essentially block the Earth to be even, even able to look back on our own planet just from a billion kilometers away. What's it going to be like when we try to get look back on it from trillions of kilometers away, meaning from light years? Now, the term little blue dot refers to a science project that was done in February of 1990. The Voyager 1 spacecraft, which we'd mentioned before, was one of the first spacecraft to leave the solar system. It's currently it flew past Jupiter and then past Saturn, and then is right now on its way leaving the solar system. But in February of, of 1990, NASA turned the cameras from Voyager 1 back on the inner solar system and undertook a project called the Solar System Family Portrait. It had gone far enough out that it should have been able to take, and did in fact take pictures, of all the eight bright planets. Pluto was nowhere in the field of view at this particular time, so it didn't take a picture of it. Now these, these streaks that you see, this left-hand side is one of the pictures taken with the Voyager spacecraft. These bright banded streaks that look like rings are in fact artifacts of scattered light because the sun is so bright it's rattling off pieces of the camera and streaking the images. 
But buried deep inside of one of those streaks, in the right position, is, of course, the, the, the now um, famous little blue dot, or pale blue dot. That is the Earth, as seen from a distance of 6.4 billion kilometers, about 4 billion miles. It is the most distant view we've ever had looking back on our own solar system. It was the late Carl Sagan who uh, coined the phrase pale blue dot to describe the fragility of Earth as seen against the dark night sky. It also very well epitomizes what we are searching for. What we are looking for around other planets. The ultimate goal is to find the pale blue dots around those stars, to find the other Earths, planets, rocky planets, in their habitable zones around their parent stars that sustains liquid water on their surfaces. And that's, that's what we'd really like to find. But the challenge is big, and the main, the main challenge, the real thing that really gets in the way, is that Earths are small and they are faint. But really, it's the extreme faintness compared to the light of the parent stars that's the challenge. Now, if we look at the Earth from far away, we see its spectrum has two components. The top spectrum here, I draw on this diagram to the left, to the right here, is the spectrum of our Sun. The Sun is a G-type main sequence star. It's got a temperature of about 5,000 degrees Kelvin, and it's got a mostly thermal spectrum falls off in the ultraviolet, peaks out at visible wavelengths, and then falls off slowly into the infrared. Not surprisingly, there are two basic components to the Earth's spectrum. One of them is simply to take the sun's spectrum and reflect it off the Earth. The sunlight passes down through the atmosphere, bounces off the land, the oceans, the ice and snow and clouds, and then goes back out through the atmosphere and gives us this reflectance spectrum. And it's simply taking the sun's spectrum and just cranking it way down in brightness. How much? Well, for those of you who can read the scale from back here, it's approximately a factor of 2 billion per wavelength interval. So only 1 billionth of the total light of the sun is actually going to be reflected back off the Earth. Some of it's absorbed in the atmosphere, of course, and we, we lose some fraction there to the albedo of the Earth, and then you get this reflectance spectrum. But that's not just the piece of the spectrum that interests us. Another piece is the fact that the Earth is, in fact, warm. It's got an average surface temperature of about 300 degrees Kelvin, and a 300 degree Kelvin warm solid object has a thermal spectrum which peaks not at visible wavelength, like a 5,000 degree Kelvin thermal spectrum, but it peaks out in the near infrared. In fact, it peaks at a, at a wavelength of about 10 microns. So if I had a thermal infrared camera that could see at 10 micron wavelengths and pointed it into this room, this room would be lit up even if I turned all the lights off, just from the thermal radiation coming off of a warm room temperature object. Not surprisingly, there's an Earth space type temperature. The whole Earth is radiating. This radiation comes primarily off the ground and the oceans, passes up through the atmosphere, and then is radiated away, radiated away into space. But you'll remember that the radiation going out into space from the infrared, some of it is going to be trapped by molecules in our atmosphere, the so-called greenhouse effect. It's trapped by carbon dioxide, water vapor, ozone, methane, and all the other famous greenhouse gases. And so the actual spectrum that emerges is not the perfect thermal spectrum of a hot black body Earth, but a black body which has been chewed into by all of these absorption lines from all the greenhouse gases in our atmosphere. Now, if I combine the reflection spectrum and the thermal spectrum of the, of the Earth together, it turns out to be about 2 billion times fainter than our sun. Therein lies the goal. Right now, right now with modern technology, I can detect two things that are about 
100,000 to a million times difference in brightness. A billion is almost three orders of magnitude increase in sensitivity that I would need to achieve to see an Earth next to its parent star. That's why we're looking at direct imaging is going to be primarily done from space with very advanced optical techniques that are still being developed, things like coronography and interferometry, working primarily at a combination of optical and infrared wavelengths. You get a bit of an edge out here in the infrared because the star, the parent star, if it's like the sun, is falling off in brightness, whereas the planet is coming up in brightness. So it slightly evens out a little bit some of that, but you're still more than a factor of a million difference in brightness, even out in the infrared where the Earth is shining by just the heat that it possesses. We can learn a couple of things from these spectra, just very quickly in words. The fractional reflectance spectrum here basically gives us the size of the planet modulo a factor of its albedo. We have to know how shiny it is to get that out. So I can tell how big the planet is by knowing what fraction of starlight it basically reflects off. Not surprising. The thermal spectrum here is very interesting because it measures the surface temperature. Right? I don't have to make these estimates based on absorbed sunlight and try to guess if there's a greenhouse effect. It's all bundled together. If I can measure the thermal spectrum, I can measure the surface temperature of that planet. So two very useful pieces of information would come right out of even a crude reflection and thermal spectrum from an exo-Earth. I would know how big it is, and I would know how warm its surface was. I would be able to confirm that its surface was warm enough for liquid water if it had an atmosphere. So the spectrum immediately tells us something very interesting, despite its faintness. The technical challenge is measuring something that faint against the bright glare of its parent star. Now, what, what is the rest of the spectrum? What does the detailed spectrum of the Earth look like? And how do we measure that? It's kind of hard to take a spectrum of yourself when you're standing on the Earth. You worry about local details getting in your way. We need to average some stuff out. Turns out there's a couple different ways we can do it. One is obvious. We can turn spacecraft that we've sent to other planets, all carry various kinds of spectrometers. And so during, for example, their cruise phases, one of the experiments people have done of late is to point those instruments back at the Earth and make measurements calibrating off the Earth to prep to see if they're working so when they arrive out at their asteroid or planet or moon, they're all ready to go. So we can use spacecraft. But there's only a handful of spacecraft assets on orbit that are good enough for this. The other place is, well, if you want to take a picture of yourself and you don't have a friend to hold the camera out for you, how do you do it? Well, one way is you could take a picture by holding the camera at arm's length, but again, it's kind of hard to get a good picture. Or you can go stand in front of a mirror and take a picture of yourself in that mirror. We have a convenient mirror. It's called the moon. Go out during a crescent moon during the evening. If it's a really clear night, you'll see the bright crescent of the moon, but you'll also see the rest of the near side face of the moon Pale illumination. What you're seeing is Earthshine. You're seeing the reflected light off the Earth reflecting off the moon. And in fact, if you take a spectrum of Earthshine, it's, it's kind of a trick, but you can do it. What you see is exactly that reflected spectrum shown in the previous slide. You see a reflected spectrum of the sun spectrum, but cutting across that spectrum are a whole bunch of extra components which have to do with the fact that the sunlight goes down through the Earth's atmosphere, so you get one line of absorption, bounces off the ground, the oceans, the snow, the clouds, goes back through the atmosphere and gets absorbed again. So you get a little double pass going on. So there's all kinds of neat stuff here in the Earthshine spectrum. So this is from blue to red. Actually, this is from the bluest light that you can see out to the near infrared. 
what you see is the spectrum has got an awful lot of, is awfully broken up. It's broken up by a series of broad bands. Those are molecules in our atmosphere. You get this sort of slight rise here towards the blue. Walk outside on a clear day. What's one of the first things you observe about the sky? It's blue. That's because blue light scatters more than red light. Well, there's the blue sky reflected in the spectrum. So I immediately know I've got a Rayleigh scattering atmosphere. I've got a scattering atmosphere around the Earth. I can look at these absorption bands. I can go and measure them and say well, what atoms or molecules do they correspond to. These two, for example, these two big spikes here on the left and right correspond to molecular oxygen. These broad, fat, wiggly bands uh, here in between, this one, this one, and this one, are water vapor. So I can immediately, if I knew nothing about the Earth at all, and I looked at the spectrum of Earth's shine, I can immediately see that we've got an atmosphere which has particulate matter that can give you some scattering of, of red light. And, and we've got um, a, a scattering, sort of scattering of blue light. And I got atomic oxygen, a molecular oxygen, and I've got water vapor. They're biomarkers. Basically, they're telling us I live in an oxygen atmosphere. There's a couple of other nifty things that are hiding deep inside of this. This red line here is a model, is the oceans have a different kind of spectrum than the atmosphere. So by seeing some of the components in the, in the spectrum, I could probably deduce the presence or absence of an ocean. And I see this interesting little rise up here into the infrared that turns out to come from vegetation. Turns out vegetation has a very particular spectral signature. Plant life leaves its mark on the sunlight bouncing off the Earth. So when I bounce starlight or sunlight off of the Earth and measure it with a spectrograph, either by looking at the moon if I want to do it from the Earth, or looking back on the Earth from a distant spacecraft I'm sending to Venus or Mars or someplace, what I see is that reflection spectrum is not just simply a mirror image of the sun spectrum, but it bears with it the imprint of all the atoms and molecules in the atmosphere, and it even bears with it spectral signatures having to deal with contents of the actual planet itself. In this case, vegetation turns out to be a strong spectral signature. So this allows us to define a set of what people are calling spectral biomarkers. These are features in the detailed spectrum of reflected light off of a planet that reveal the presence of the kinds of compounds we expect if the atmosphere is interacting with living chemistry. And there are four, five, excuse me, five basic spectral markers that are molecular that I list here. The first of these is, that, got, that came out kind of small, sorry about that. Uh, molecular oxygen, O2, the stuff we breathe, it's 20 odd percent of the Earth's atmosphere. That's a really good biomarker because the only way we know of to make molecular oxygen in abundance is with photosynthetic life. The problem is with O2, even though it's a wonderful life molecule, it turns out to be in a part of the spectrum that makes it easily confused by other spectral features. So if you just tried to use the O2 spectrum in an exo-Earth by itself, you might get a false positive for oxygen presence, because it's just challenging to do. However, and this is an interesting surprise, I didn't realize this until I started studying this a few years ago, ozone is actually a way better oxygen indicator than O2. Uh, ozone is three oxygen, oxygen atoms put together. It's basically what's called a photolytic product of O2. To get ozone, you must first have molecular oxygen, O2. It's formed by basically UV radiation hitting an O2, breaking one of them up into, into two oxygens, and then that oxygen grabbing onto a nearby O2 to make O3. Uh, atomic oxygen is ridiculously reactive. That's how that works. But what's nice is, it has an extremely distinctive 
molecular absorption band that isn't confused with anything, and it's a very strong band. So even though ozone is a tiny, tiny component of all the molecular oxygen forms in our atmosphere, it has a disproportionate biomarker because it's such a strong infrared absorber. In fact, it's the infrared absorption properties of ozone is why our stratosphere has a temperature inversion at the ozone layer. So it turns out to be a very powerful biomarker. If you see O3, you know you're dealing with an oxygen-2 rich atmosphere, and therefore it forms a good proxy for the presence of biogenic molecular oxygen. Carbon dioxide forms gigantic bands in the atmosphere of, atmosphere of the uh, star. Here's one of the very large um, carbon dioxide bands that shows up in wavelengths out. It's sort of uh, 12 to 15 microns of wavelength. What finding a CO2 in a reflectance spectrum shows you is that planet's got an atmosphere and one substantial enough to give you enough carbon dioxide. You also see water vapor bands all over the place in the infrared. Water vapor is another potential biomarker because we know that liquid water is essential for life. If you have water vapor in the atmosphere, you know you probably don't have a planet like Venus that's destroyed all of its water vapor over time through a runaway greenhouse effect. Or a planet like Mars that's wiped out its water vapor because it's frozen out. However, it turns out it's not going to be a foolproof indicator because there are ways to put water vapor in atmospheres that are prebiotic. So it's a sufficient but not necessary condition for, for detection here. If you find water vapor, that's cool, but there are non-biological aspects to water vapor that make it not a really keen biomarker in the same way that ozone is. And finally, and this one is kind of a surprise a little bit, is methane. This shows a little methane band down here in the infrared. Methane is a byproduct of anaerobic life, of methanobacteria. That doesn't sound very interesting to us today because methane bacteria are not an important component of life. But what if we see an exo-Earth that's not a heavily evolved planet like ours, but an Earth that just recently formed its atmosphere? If I go back to the prebiotic Earth, I get a great deal of, of atmospheric methane. And so this may be a way of spotting Earths where life is just getting a toehold, finding those prebiotic or just becoming biotic planets. Whereas the presence of oxygen shows me that I have an evolved biotic planet. So these are the spectral signatures. And let's just take a look at what we get. We can, we can play this game with Venus, the Earth, and Mars in our own solar system. Earth has water vapor, ozone, and carbon dioxide bands. And of course it has liquid water and lots of life on it. Venus is completely bone dry. There's no water vapor absorption at all but a very deep carbon dioxide atmosphere and show it has a very deep carbon dioxide absorption. So it's got an atmosphere, but no water, no ozone. We would probably consider this to be a relatively dead Earth-like planet. Mars, almost all the water vapor is frozen out. There's little teeny tiny traces, virtually no, essentially no ozone, but again, very deep carbon dioxide bands. So if these were three candidate exo-Earths around some other star, I would be able to tag the middle one as Water, oxygen, probably got life, big atmosphere, dead, big atmosphere, dead. I might then measure the thermal spectrum of Venus, or this Venus-like planet, and say, whoa, 600 Kelvin, Venus world, don't look there for life. Or, wow, Mars, that's got a really cold thermal spectrum, probably not a place to look for life, but this one might be, hmm, warm, 
Goldilocks problem all over again. So there's an awful lot you can learn about the spectrum. You can immediately probably call out possible place to look for life, Venus world, Mars world, very quickly by using this combination of the thermal spectrum, which gives you the temperature, and then looking for these spectroscopic biomarkers. Let's take a little bit about methane. This is, this is actually a very useful one. Um, methane is, is a really interesting biomarker. It's one, again, if, you know, it, it fell off of people's lists of what to look for. But with a little thought, people put it back on because methane's got some interesting properties. Methane produces an extremely strong absorption band even in terribly small concentrations. This is shown by a spectrum over here on the, on the left and then on, on top and bottom over here on the, on the I'm sorry, on your, on your right. The first top spectrum shows a prebiotic earth spectrum, so a very heavy carbon dioxide atmosphere, water vapor, but they put together a, a atmospheric mix that had no methane in it whatsoever. And all you see are water vapor and carbon dioxide bands in the infrared. Then they took that same mix and put in artificially 1% methane. You see the same spectrum on the blue part of the spectrum, carbon dioxide and water vapor, but then boom, a gigantic whopping methane band over here on the far right side of the spectrum. So you can see the difference here. On the no methane, it's falling off. Put a little bit of methane and wham, you get this gigantic absorption. This kind of methane is the kind of methane production you expect when you go from the pre-life, the prebiotic earth, the first forms of life that arose on the Earth were not going to be photosynthesis. They were going to be methane-eating bacteria, meth methanogens, methane-making bacteria. Could be bubbling up out of, of hot vents, could have been uh, near-surface blue-green algae produce methane as their byproducts. Those methane, once you get even just a tiny trace, 1% is not that much, it produces a gigantic biomarker signature. So you would be able to tell a prebiotic planet from one that had just started life. This is probably the spectrum of Earth before life arose. This is probably the spectrum of the Earth partway through the Archaean Eon, in which small bacteria, here's little micrograms of, of methanogenic bacteria, could make a very, very strong methane signature. Today, these methane bacteria have died. Oxygen poisons them. As photosynthesis arose on the Earth, the methanogenic bacteria were basically killed off. They were poisoned by all that nasty oxygen. Oxygen became dominant in the atmosphere, and the methane content of the atmosphere fell off. And so just backing up a couple slides, this is our present atmosphere. There's that methane feature, and you can see how weak it is by comparison to the estimated. The, the spectra, unfortunately, have been flipped here. Depends upon who you get these things from. There's the NASA guys who are the infrared astronomers and the NASA guys who are the visible wavelength astronomers, and this is the infrared astronomers, and they plot their spectra backwards. So this is red over here, blue down here. You get this whopping big methane band. So not only can we possibly find the content of the atmosphere, but we might even be able to tell the stage of evolution of life on one of these planets. Strong methane signature would mean we found an early planet early in the phase where it's making methanogenic uh, life. Oxygen, a late evolved atmosphere like we see on our own planet. It's an awful lot of information. So what if we saw one of these planets with a lot of oxygen? Well, it turns out there's another spectral marker that can show up in the, in the, in the, uh, in, in the planet spectrum that could give us an awful lot of information. So let's concentrate just for a moment on these pictures over here on the right. This is a picture of a nice sort of, you know, foresty kind of place. You got trees, you got ferns, you got all kinds of plants going on. 
This is the visible light view, and it looks like green plants. If you take a picture up in the infrared, just a little bit around 700, 700, 800 nanometers wavelength, so just beyond what the eye can see with an infrared camera, they put a little bit of a pink tinge on this just to be fun, but look at suddenly how bright all those trees are. All the plants, they look like they're glowing. They look like they're white. The reason is because it turns out plants in their structure are very, very strongly reflective in the infrared. That's one of the ways in which they've evolved to stay cool in bright sunlight. Basically, the combination of pigments that give leaves their green color, in addition to the chlorophyll, there's other pigments and other structures in the leaves, These are the pigments that come through when the chlorophyll dies off and you see the pretty fall colors. Those pigments are very, give us the yellows and browns and reds of fall leaf color are very strongly reflective in the infrared. Kind of makes sense. One of the dominant colors is brown, which is kind of mostly red, and bright blazing red like a maple leaf. Okay, so that extends into the infrared. And if you take the spectrum of a leaf, this is a reflection spectrum of looking down. Now, this is actually data on the left-hand side here. This spectrum goes from visible light to infrared. This is actually looking down through the atmosphere from an Earth satellite at a place in the summertime with lots of plant life. We see a little bump here, which is due to emission from the chlorophyll molecule. We see this sudden extreme rise in reflectance at the red edge, and then we see the rest of the reflected sunlight, water vapor absorption, as before. So the water vapors from the atmosphere. So this extremely large jump from about, oh, it's about 4% reflectivity all the way up to about 45% reflectivity on the other side of this gives us this very, very bright, sharp feature called the red edge. This is why, again, like why maple leaves look red, but when you look at things in the infrared, the vegetation glows. We use this all the time in Earth-sensing satellites to look down at the ground and you want to know how good are the crops doing in central India or out in some part of Africa. I mean, how do they tell how well crops are doing from space? They don't count plants and they can't put people on the ground in some of those places. What they do is they use what's called multispectral imaging. They take pictures of the ground in filters that, that get visible light on the blue side and then on the red side of the red edge. And wherever there's plant life, you get this very strong reflectance signature from the red edge, and you can basically count the reflectance sign, you count the number of leaves. So you can tell how well crops are doing just by using these two colors. Add some extra in, you get a lot of info. So we use this a lot for remote sensing, to, to you know, crops, assays, and stuff like that. We can also use this on planets around other stars. We can look in the spectrum for the red edge. If I see a red edge, then I've got plant life. So I don't just find oxygen or or, or methane or whatever, but if I find a red edge, wow, that place has got plants, and that's where the oxygen came from, photosynthesis. Now, we don't know that the pathways of evolution are always going to produce this, but this doesn't come from anything special except for it allowed plants that grew up with these kinds of pigments could eat more easily cool off in full sunlight. If a plant gets too hot, it screws up its biochemistry. So being able to be efficient at cooling yourself in full sunlight lets you use full sunlight for energy without burning yourself up, or worse, drying yourself out, or screwing up and making your chemistry inefficient. 
So if you're able to cool and use full sunlight, you're very efficient at sunlight utilization. There's a gigantic evolutionary pressure on that. Maybe that evolutionary pressure exists when life has started out in another world. We don't know, but it's something we can go looking for. So that's what we can tell about the chemical content of the atmosphere. We can get some idea of looking for these biomarkers. But there's a couple of other interesting inf pieces of information I can get. One of them is, in fact, the Earth is not a featureless blue dot. It, in fact, has got structure in it. It's got continents. It's got oceans. It's got cloud patterns that come and go. It suddenly becomes very reflective in the northern hemisphere starting around December through March and then becomes very green kind of in May through September because of the change of the seasons. So if we watched a planet, just taking one picture and one snapshot of an exo-Earth would give us a lot of information. But of course, you know we're not going to just take one. We're going to take picture after picture, year after year, month after month. If we do that for the Earth, what we find is the brightness of the Earth, the reflectivity of the Earth, changes in time. It doesn't shine constantly. It's always changing how much light is coming to us, whether you're looking at the Pacific Ocean or rolling across the continents or whether you've got a big storm system going on. You get a lot of cloud reflection. As winter comes and the summer comes, you get greater or lesser degrees of reflection. So this is simply one day worth of rotation of the Earth, this black line, is what you would see if you looked at the Earth from a spacecraft far away and just watched the change in brightness over the course of one day. What you're watching is oceans and continents rolling by, but there's also, you can put in cl as cloudless Earth. If you throw in some clouds, you'll get different patterns and you can watch the cloud systems come and go. Let's take the Earth and turn it into snowball Earth. Okay, we can do that. We can artificially paint the Earth with snow and then say, what would it look like? It looks like the blue dash line. If I then, instead of taking the blue dash line as snowball earth, all land surface covered with ice, I could play other games. I can say, okay, well, you know, we got the whole red edge thing going on in here. Let's uh, strip the earth of plant life. We make desert world, you know. Desert world looks different from a world with plants on it. Why don't we really go crazy with the plants? Why don't we just cover the entire Earth with plants, including all the deserts? We make Jungle Planet, okay? Jungle Planet would look different from regular Earth, from desert Earth, from snowball Earth. So I can actually, from the variability of the reflectance spectrum, and I can play games with the colors. I get on one side of the red edge or the other. I could tell a planet that had continents versus oceans. I could tell a water world that had no continents whatsoever and just had weather patterns. I could tell a snowball earth from a desert earth from a jungle earth. So I can tell things like gross climate just by watching and measuring day after day, year after year, hour after hour, the variation as the planet sits there rotating and then goes through its course of seasons. I still can't take a picture of it other than just being a pale blue dot. But by analyzing the light from that pale blue dot, I can learn just a tremendous amount. So let's kind of summarize it with this picture here. Spectroscopy is an extremely powerful tool. Yeah, okay, I'm keen on spectroscopy because I'm a spectroscopist and I'm biased. But I hope I've convinced you that spectroscopy is much more than just simply taking a picture and saying, ooh, pale blue dot. Once I can take a spectrum, I can learn all kinds of things about it. So for example, you can say, has the planet got oxygen? Okay, so got oxygen? Look for O3, for ozone. Look for the presence of, of oxygen produced by photosynthesis, by plants. Look for a red edge to see if you've got plant life. 
Has it got water? Right? We can see water vapor, liquid water vapor. We can see the water vapor signature in the atmosphere. We might see the characteristic reflectance spectrum of oceans coming past. Oceans have a fairly characteristic way of reflecting sunlight. Has it got an atmosphere? Okay. Have we got carbon dioxide? Have we got water vapor? Have we got ozone? Have we got nothing? We could find Earths that are completely stripped of their atmospheres. We wouldn't bother looking too more closely at those. We might find Earth-sized planets that have gone Venus on us and basically turned into complete runaway greenhouse effects. We might find Mars, uh, planets that have gone totally desert on us and frozen out like Mars. We can learn an awful lot from the presence of the atmospheres. And finally, if we see methane or other things, you've got, wait for it, life. Do we have, in fact, life on these planets? We won't really get definitive answers, but we'll get strong, strong indications if we see methane combined with oxygen, combined with water vapor signatures. These are, these are the things that would basically get our attention. So the bottom line is that it's still speculative. We're still talking about what we might see on these planets by looking at the Earth for lessons. The technology exists today to find Earths around other stars. We can do it with the technology we possess, with, a, with development pathways we can identify. All we've got to do is convince uh, the European Union and the Congress to throw a few billion dollars at it, or, or 10 or 20. Pretty much, here's my guess, okay? This is, this is a, I would say this is an informed opinion that I've formed over the last few years of playing this game and watching this game being played out. I would state that I think it's a very high chance that there will be a positive detection of an Earth-like planet in its parent star's habitable zone probably within the next decade. I don't think it's going to happen in the next 40-odd days that are left in 2009, but let's take the decade of the 2010s, sometime in that decade, probably in the next two to three years is my guess. Maybe next year, if things get lucky, we're going to find one. It's going to come either by microlensing, which I'm kind of hoping it will, because I'd like a piece of the action, or it's going to come from transit studies, and it'll drop out of Kepler. So if Kepler's going to do it, the Kepler spacecraft, 2013, 2012. They'll probably come out, big press release, we found an Earth. There's a lot of efforts going on. There are a tremendous number of teams working on this now from the ground and from space. We're putting a lot of assets on it. NASA has got an entire office called the Origins Project, which is, among other things, is giving us plenty of funding for doing our work with microlensing, but also NASA's putting behind this with spacecraft, with spacecraft development, with technology development, with ground-based observing programs. So it's a big deal. ESA's getting in the game. The Japanese are starting to get in the game. The Russians are starting to get in the game. And I don't think it's going to be too long before the Chinese start playing the game. So a lot of people are going to be putting a lot of effort in this. It's a big question. What we'd really like, the Holy Grail, all these top two are going to do is say, hey, there's probably an Earth around that star, and it's probably in its habitable zone. But we won't know anything else but an existence proof. The real goal, take a picture of it. The picture that everybody wants is that pale blue dot seen next to its star. This pictures of exo-Earths, and then finally, once we get the pale blue dot, the specter of that, that's for the future. The spectral biomarkers I've mentioned require a greater leaps of technology, greater investments of times, now billions of dollars, specialized spacecraft to pull off. This is going to be for the future. And my guess is that's going to take probably the next 20 to 30 years. So eh, I'm kind of 48 now. So you know, if I take a look at my uncles and father, I've got a reasonable crack at seeing an Earth-like planet with life on it sometime before I leave this particular one. But it's going to require very expensive space observatories. Why do we care? 
Well, think for a moment what the impact would be if NASA or ESA or the Chinese National Space Agency, whoever does this, announces that around a star 12 light years away, they have found an Earth-like planet in its habitable zone, and here are the biomarkers. Here are the signs of life, of methane, of liquid water. It would galvanize humanity. We wouldn't just be content to take a spectrum. We would want to go there. We would want to see for ourselves what was there. That kind of project is not going to be done by Americans or Europeans or Chinese. It is going to require the joint resources of all of humanity to do this. What if we found out that we really weren't alone in the universe? This is why we care, and this is why we search. Any questions? Okay, I'll see you all tomorrow. Good luck on exam number four. <laughs>